Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week we are talking about addiction after assault. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Dr. Vanessa Dunn Guyton. Dr. Guyton uses she, her pronouns and is the CEO of Consulting Experts and Associates, LLC. CEA is a global training consulting firm that assists organizations in improving training and organization effectiveness. Additionally, she is the founder and executive director of Hush No More, which is a nonprofit organization and movement that provides a platform to allow survivors to share their story and help victims to heal and unleash the shame of their trauma. This platform led to her creating and producing the Hush No More documentary, the Hush No More book, trauma-releasing coloring book, and When a Date Turns to Rape. Her documentary has been shown internationally in Japan, Kuwait, Jordan, and Cater, to bring awareness to the hush topic. So thank you so, so much for being here, Dr. Guyton. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. It is truly an honor and a pleasure, and I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm super excited too. And I also have returning Kevin Fox. So Kevin uses he, him pronouns and is a victim advocate in an adjunct position with the VSC and Zebra Coalition serving survivors in the LGBTQ plus community. Kevin worked as a high school teacher while receiving his Master of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Rollins College. His passion when working with clients is to help them increase their resilience and satisfaction with their everyday lives. He seeks to help clients increase their meaning from life and live more authentically and honestly. So Kevin, thank you as well for being back on the podcast. Yes, I'm always happy to be here. I am too. And I'm really excited for this timely discussion. Um, And just as a brief introduction, we talk a lot about the different effects trauma can have on survivors and the very, very normal responses survivors can have following sexual violence, including coping mechanisms. Some of these coping mechanisms can be healthy, while others can be potentially dangerous. So today we will be discussing substance abuse following trauma, Dr. Guyton's book, Hush No More and Her Story, addressing myths and combating stigmas surrounding addiction and ways we can all be better supporters. So with that, I think it's worth kind of defining what exactly is addiction? So anyone can start off first, but how would you define addiction? For me, I define addiction as something that you cannot stop, something that you do obsessively. You want to stop, but can't, or it's affecting your life, your normal life. Like you can't go to work. um, You can't exist without doing a certain thing. You can't just live your life like you normally did before and it's making major changes it might be affecting everybody but it might not so but it's one of those things that you just want to stop and know that you can't stop or it's allowing you to be able to move forward in life and so that's what addiction is for me that is my definition and how i look at it and how i view it 
Thank you for providing that. I think that I love the way that you framed it in a very non-judgmental way. And we'll talk a little bit about the way that we kind of as a society look at it and all like the stigmas and myths surrounding it. But I appreciate that definition. Kevin, is there anything you have to add on to that? Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I would define it really similarly in that it's something that someone feels they have to do so deeply that it starts to impact the day-to-day life. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because when do you know someone is kind of out of that balance, right? I think life is kind of all about balance. So when do you know when someone is out of balance and is suffering from an addiction? But I think sometimes we are out of balance when you have to do something a lot more in order to move forward. And so if you don't drink, if you don't do a certain drug, if you don't eat, if you don't do something from an obsessive level, then it takes you out of balance, right? It's, it's like obsessive. Like you must do this in order to move forward. So the scales are tipped, tipped when you do that. And I look at my life and saying, I felt out of balance because I couldn't move forward if I didn't do this, if I didn't drink. And so that was off balance for me. And I didn't even know what balance was. I didn't even know what the definition was or understand it. But to me, that's a a off balance, a kilter type environment that you find yourself in. Yeah, it sounds like something that, again, kind of going back to that almost like um, trapped feeling of needing to do a certain thing. Um, And that's kind of throwing you out of balance. Kevin, um, how about you when you work with your clients um, who may or may not suffer from substance abuse or other things? How do you know when a client is kind of maybe out of balance in that regard? If they, hopefully they'll tell you (laughs) and make it a bit easier on us. But um, I think as a counselor observing some of those inconsistencies, um, hearing their story and seeing how they wanted to do something, they really wanted to make this job interview on time, but because of this addiction, you know, for whatever it is, um, it prevented them from doing so. They wanted to head to their family's holiday thing, but their addiction got in the way. So it's noticing that there might be a desire to be more present in their own life and the lives of those that they care about. But the one thing that's consistently getting in that way is, you know, but I had to take a drink first, or I was already a bit tipsy or, you know, addiction to gambling. I didn't have money. You know, I couldn't do these things. So whatever the addiction is, once you're noticing, it sounds like you want to do a lot of things, but every time that addiction is showing up somehow and preventing you, I think that's the biggest indicator is noticing those inconsistencies between what they want and then what is happening because of their addiction. Yeah. And I appreciate you say what they want too, because everyone has different goals and things like that. And when they're sharing, like, I wanted to show up to do this thing, but this got in the way that seems to be kind of, you know, of course, individualized for that person. I want to chime in because I think sometimes we think that addiction prevents us from doing things and it doesn't always. Some people are very able to make it to work, to go to the functions, to go and do everything that is expected of them and then come home in silence and they're suffering. And so a lot of times people are like, well, I don't have a problem because I can make it to work. But in all actuality, you do. (laughs) You just, you're still able to move forward and all addictions doesn't stop us in our tracks. And that's what makes it difficult because you can continue the addiction and still survive, you know, and still move forward. So it's really one of those sticky situations that you have to self-evaluate. You have to look at your own life and determine when you feel like you have an addiction and when it's affecting you. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up too. That's such a good point. Whenever we talk about these different, um, things as far as, for example, anxiety and depression, there's the high functioning anxiety and depression, and then there's the low functioning and everyone's different, just as everyone's different as far as how they respond to trauma, they're different in how they may respond or um, how substance abuse may look in their life compared to other people. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about terms specifically, because we're throwing around like substance abuse and we're throwing around addiction. Are any of these kind of um, harmful uh, to use? Is there like a preferred word besides addiction? Is addiction like a bad word or should we be using something else as supporters? 
for me, I like for people to identify with how they want to call it. Just like I don't tell if somebody if they're a survivor, if they say victim, I follow victim. If they're a survivor, they're a survivor. Same thing. If they say I have a, a substance use, this is what I'm doing. That's what I use. I follow suit on how they identified. If they say they have an addiction, then they have an addiction. You know, and I think that's important to allow people to determine how to name what's going on in their life and to support them in that way. You know, and like you'll hear some people say I'm an alcoholic and then some people say I'm not an alcoholic. I just have a drug, uh, a alcohol problem. So if they say they have an alcohol problem, that's what I, I say. I don't follow with addiction, you know, and I support using their verbiage. Now, sometimes you have to have the conversation based on your relationship with them of, ah, you're calling it this, but are you sure? Maybe it's this, you know, and let's talk about it. And have you considered this, you know? And these are some things and see if they can come to terms with it because they must accept the verbiage that they're using and identify with their addiction the way they do it so that they can actually get help based on the way they're viewing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's always a really good reminder to let people identify how they identify. Kevin, did you have any thoughts on that? I was just going to build on that. I think it's so personal how people define it and what word makes the most sense for them um, that we use. We mimic that language the client's using. So if they say, yeah, um, I'm an addict versus I'm someone struggling with addiction versus I'm an alcoholic versus I'm a, you know, whatever they want to say, validating that for them. Cause that if we tell them, no, they're not, it's, it's only going to make things worse. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, we're also talking a little bit about coping mechanisms. Um, and I've heard the differences. There's a healthy coping mechanism and an unhealthy coping mechanism. So how do you kind of see the difference? Like when it comes to substances specifically or just in general? I guess what in general, as far as, you know, following a traumatic event, a survivor may develop different coping mechanisms and some of them may be considered healthy and some may be considered unhealthy. So I wonder how, um, as therapists and counselors, how do you kind of identify the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy coping mechanism? For me, a healthy coponism is something that makes you feel better. So for some people, they go to the gym and they work out and afterwards they feel better. Meditation might feel better. Affirmations, you may feel better. But if you don't feel better after you're using it, it's not healthy. So the addiction, you know, you might have a hangover, right? You might have chills and shakes and all of those unhealthy things that's associated. That's how I look at it. What is the result after you do it? Yeah. And I think also like long-term too, right? Like if it's a sustainable coping mechanism that in the long-term makes you feel better as well, because maybe in the immediate term, it might feel a certain way, but then later on, um, Kevin, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to jump in on. Yeah. Yeah. Coping, I guess at the baseline is anything helping us feel better in the present, but then it's in the long term, what is the effect it's having on us? Um, is it making our life harder or is it preventing us from actually getting any better? And it's a temporary fix. Um, you know, even with clients, there can be healthy coping. That's just a simple distraction. So like watching TV for an hour, like there's nothing bad in the long term, and it feels good in the intermediate, but it's not, you know, it's a temporary, but it's not unhealthy. So there's definitely the middle of the road to where it's like, okay, you just need a, a break, a brain break from all the stress. Sure. Play video games for an hour. Great. Um, <laughs> and then there's the stuff that it's like, okay, I'm working on my meditating. I'm working on physical activity. Um, and then of course the unhealthy that we think of, which is developing bad relationship patterns or falling into potential substance use addiction, um, isolating, you know, a lot of clients, I'm like, oh, what helps you feel better? And they're like, oh, I just sleep for a few hours. It's like, so it's falls into that realm of avoidance. Um, but for right now, it might be all we have. So we're going to take it and then we're going to build on it. Yeah, I really appreciate both of you bringing to the table this um, pulling away of like shame, you know, and, and how um, just like accepting and validating the survivor where they're at and, and meeting them where they're at. Um, Absolutely. 
I wanted to kind of shift the conversation a little bit to the connection between trauma and substance abuse, kind of the reason why we're having this conversation today. So according to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network in surveys of adolescents receiving treatment for substance abuse, more than 70% of patients or clients had a history of trauma exposure. So there's this huge correlation between trauma and substance abuse. So why do you think there is this connection? Um, and, and what can we learn from that? I think when I look, you know, from what we do at victim service center, primarily with, well, all with some form of trauma, um, we do now, we use the ACEs score a lot. So we know that any kind of trauma can predispose someone to unhealthy coping habits. And when trauma is on top of trauma, on top of trauma, especially at a young age, those can become very normalized. Um, so I, I guess in my observation, it, it makes sense. You know what I mean? In terms of relieving shame, it makes sense. How could you not want to use the quickest fix to get over this horrible and traumatic thing that has happened to you? I don't think anyone can blame them. And that's where I like to validate clients as far as alleviating shame. Um, sometimes people, they just have a, a regular day at work and they're like, Ooh, that was a long day. I need a drink and it's harmless, you know, one or two drinks, whatever. Um, but someone who has been traumatized and those thoughts are constantly there or it's ongoing, you know, even in the present moment, if it's an uh, abusive relationship or parent child relationship, that might be the only form of escape that they get is from the altered mind that any substance can give. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It's not good, of course, but it, it makes sense. And we, again, kind of take the client where they're at and we build better coping skills. But um, I don't know, I guess it's hard to now because drugs are so normalized, like, right, like things that were illegal aren't illegal anymore. And um, access is so much easier. So it's balancing what's normal use versus unhealthy use, which I guess we can jump into a bit later too, but. <laughs> so I think it's a connection because you don't want to feel when you do alcohol and drugs, it takes that feeling away. You're not thinking about the trauma. You know, sometimes it makes you forget. It just relaxes you. And so it's easy to get caught up in that. You don't want to have the shame. You don't want to have the guilt. You don't want to process all the emotions. You don't want to have the dreams. Sometimes you're hypervigilant and alcohol stops that. You know, you, you could sleep better when you do alcohol, even though a lot of times you don't finish fin really feel like you're going to sleep anyway throughout the night, but it helps you to go off to sleep. And so I think it's very easy to do it, to get caught up in that cycle because of the way the drugs and the alcohol make you feel and how it stops you from feeling. And so it's very common, very common. And people don't even realize that they're doing it because it starts becoming normal. They create a new normal for themselves. And so that creates the connection and also the people that you surround yourself with or when you have that feeling of you don't care about yourself, you don't value yourself. If somebody could rape me and take my body, then I don't care about my body. I could care less. And so you get caught up in that cycle of doing the drugs and the alcohol as well. And so it's an emotional response and it's an activity that continues and continues until you realize I'm not happy anymore. You know, you don't want to be in the present and alcohol prevents you from being in the present. That's such a really integral part because it always kind of goes back to mindfulness I feel like when we talk about kind of different strategies as far as bringing someone back to their body bringing them back to the present um and yeah I think that um it also depends on our environment too I think we're in a culture that kind of um doesn't it might um, foster an environment that encourages certain substance abuse, especially around the holidays when sh this is when it's coming out right before New Year's, right? I think that there can be a lot of pressure of like, oh, don't you want to drink? Or are you sure I got the champagne? You know, it's, it's New Year's Eve. What are you doing out if you're not going to drink? You know, there could be all these pressures. Um, and I appreciate you also kind of sharing that it's a lot more common too, which is why I think that it's important we do kind of remove the shame surrounding this 
topics so that people can get the help that they need. With that, Kevin, so I know that there's this connection between trauma and, um, you know, substance abuse, like we mentioned. So do you ever work with clients um, that are looking for assistance specifically in addressing substance abuse? Um, And if so, could you share a bit about how an advocate can help survivors um, move forward um, towards healthy coping mechanisms? Yeah, I I want to say luckily, so there has been some questionable substance use, I think, with clients I've seen. Um, it has never really gone into that realm of like a severe or overwhelming addiction. But I always start at the ground floor first, like building the foundation. What are new coping skills introduced? Not even necessarily starting off the bat with like get rid of your old ones, because again, depending on how recent the trauma was, they just might need to access those for a minute while we replace and add in the better coping skills. Um, again, for some people, especially in adults now too, like knowing where's the line. So a 22 year old who like is still in college and going out a lot and drinking a lot, like it's not good, but is it societally normal behavior? Sure. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Nowadays too, if they're vaping and getting high every now and then with some friends, is that societally accepted behavior? Sure. Um, I have had clients where it's like, oh, the first thing I do when I wake up is I need a hit of like a vape pen to get a little high to start my day. And I'm like, why, (laughs) what could you start your day without that? And if the answer is no, then, then we have a problem. Then that's where it's a requirement again, to access daily, being able to go day to day with, you know, with having to have it. So I've kind of hit that intersection a few times, but it's starting with introducing better, healthier coping skills that'll last a long time and that we can continue to practice. And once we have a good handful, then we can start shrinking the necessity of substance use now that they have better skills to replace that with. And even of course, like the deeper part of it, like, you know, asking the question, why, like why the substance, what is it doing for you that you're not getting anywhere else and kind of doing that emotional exploration of things. Um, But the more concrete stuff first with like better coping. Yeah. I think that it, again, kind of meeting them where they're at in their healing journey and seeing like, okay, what's, what's the priority here to, to start with. Um, And Dr. Guyton, just kind of shifting gears a little bit here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story and your book, Hush No More, and the work that you do. So I I did want to say one thing on that, that you just said. Reduction in harm is very important for advocates to really pay attention to. Because when you tell people to stop, if they could stop, they would. (laughs) <laughs> so what can we put in place to allow you to come up with a plan for your own life to reduce what you're doing to eventually eliminate it? Because it's really hard. Some people, a small percentage of people could just stop and they're done with it. But if you have trauma, it's really hard to just stop. So I'm really big and advocating about reduction in harm and what can we do to support them in that process. Um, for me, I am a survivor of military sexual trauma. I was sexually assaulted by a supervisor that I thought was my friend and was supportive. And I suppressed it for about 17 years. And during that time, I was drinking very heavily, very heavily was one of my coping mechanisms and not remembering why. I had a trigger that brought the memory back. And that's when I started realizing, well, this is what happened. Everything flooded my mind and my drinking got worse. And it was, you need to stop, you know. But I went to work every day. I went to work. I went to college. I did everything that I was supposed to do. I was a mom. I was a wife. You know, even battling depression, I still pushed forward. But I had an addiction problem that I would not admit to myself that I did. And so that started my journey of saying, I need to heal and what needs to go. Alcohol was not the first thing to go, right? (laughs) I wanted to work on the depression because I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol because I just used it to sleep. I just use it to relax, but I really was addicted and realized that I could not stop. And so even being admitted into the hospital, I was in the hospital for a week, just working on myself and working on trauma and trying to get better. And that's when I realized, Vanessa, things are not right. 
So I started working on my my healing. I started Hush No More after I was really in this place of, man, there's more people out here like me that never told anybody, never shared what happened, who suppressed it. And so how can I help others? And that helps me to heal. But in that same time, I was still drinking. So I did eventually stop drinking. Um, February 7th, 2019 was my day that I said I was going to stop. And it was a journey for me. Nobody could tell me how to stop, what to do. No suggestions matter. It was when I made the decision to actually say, I'm getting to this next level. Um, I'm in a great place now. And I realized that I'm not the only one. So when I started telling people about my sexual assault and the trauma that I had and my addiction, then they start coming forward. Well, me too, you know? And so I realized we started bonding that way. Um, going to AA really helped me a lot. And the women in there, I go to an all women's group. They all had trauma. Like every woman in AA that's with me has been sexually assaulted, molested or some type of way. So I realized it was a big problem, which made me start speaking more about it and sharing that and talking to advocates about how they could bring this topic up and how we could look at reduction in harm just from my own life. Um, I did the Hush No More documentary to share other people's story, not necessarily mine because I wasn't ready to share yet, but I did share my story in the Hush No More book about what I was going through and what actually happened to me. But I created a platform for all of us to be able to share and to finally say, I'm going to tell what happened to me and eliminate the shame, eliminate the guilt, and just stand up in my own truth so that I can heal. So that's just a summary of my life and my addiction. And, and addiction is not easy. I, I Every day, it's a decision if I'm going to drink or not. I don't have urges, thank God, but it's a hard journey. And so I just want people to just understand that when people have trauma and they have addiction with it, they really, really are in a bad place, but it's a journey that they have to do for themselves. And so you have to love them through it and accept them through it, no matter what they're going through. Thank you so much, Dr. Guyton, for sharing your story and for all that you do on behalf of survivors. And um, I think the Hush No More project is incredible. Um, and I love that it's all about kind of this communal healing of coming together and removing the stigma surrounding it, because I, I love that there we're having this conversation. I think it's a very important one to have, um, you know, how has you, you've heard, I've heard from other survivors that, you know, training and activism can be kind of impactful in their healing journey. So has the training and activism been healing for you particularly? It has. Um, it helps me a lot when I can help somebody else share their story, when I can help somebody else come forward. That helps me. But I also have to be very careful because it's very easy for somebody else's trauma to get onto you. It's very easy for you to get exhausted trying to help other people. So I'm always taking vacations and breaks and making sure that I stay healthy because some victims can consume you they will drain every bit of you <laughs> if you allow it. So it is very therapeutic for me. I love what I do, but I do have to take breaks. I do have to set boundaries. I do have to say no sometimes and make sure that I take care of me. And there were times that I did not do that where I hit just absolute exhaustion. So I no longer do that. And I'm very careful when I tell people that you can advocate for others and heal at the same time, because you may not be able to, and you have to look at yourself and say, uh, this is not working. You know, I'm not taking care of myself because I'm so involved in somebody else. But for me, I love what I do. I, I get chills when I share my story and somebody walks up to me and say, you know, I didn't even realize the same thing was happening to me. The same thing's happening to me. You know, even from education, I, I was an education junkie. Reason why? Because if I was in school and I was studying, I didn't think about my trauma, you know, and just telling people that and letting them know you're not alone. So it's really good to be an advocate and to be able to make somebody smile through the crap that they're going through. I, I totally hear you in, in that when, whenever we kind of share like, hey, this helped me, but this might not be what, you know works for you. And I think there can also be kind of this pressure sometimes put on survivors to be more vocal from a public standpoint where you absolutely do not have to do that. And I also appreciate 
that there are times where you need to step away and walk away. And it doesn't mean that you are um, betraying anything. It doesn't mean that you are going backwards at all. It actually is a, an amazing sign that you're practicing amazing self-care, which is super, super integral. Um, I think we kind of touched on it a little bit, but where did the name Hush No More come from? How did you kind of come up with it? And we talked a little bit about what it represents, but anything you want to add to it? I was actually talking to my friend. Her name is Angela Carr Patterson. She's phenomenal. And I was sharing with her my concept and ideas. And she was like, what about Hush No More? Stop being silent. Like you were so quiet. You never shared. You never encouraged anybody. And it just fit. (laughs) So it fit because that's what I was doing. I was completely silent. The night that I got raped, I went to my room and I said I was never telling anybody because I didn't think anybody was going to believe me. He was very charismatic, very popular. And I was in his room. So I didn't think anybody was going to believe me. So it was like, Vanessa, just hush. (laughs) Don't share it. And I just feel like people can relate to that. And when I say it, they'd be like, yeah, that was me. And I want to give people a choice if they're ready to come forward. And it doesn't mean that you have to be on a major platform and go all around the world speaking. It's just that that next brother or sister that's next to you, when they're struggling, say, you know what? Something similar happened to me and I'm here for you. You know, it's something just as small as that. Just telling somebody else that I'm here for you. I've been through some struggles and I got your back. So I advocate from that small standpoint that is very huge to doing it all around and just advocating for others, but advocating for yourself as well. Definitely love that. Thanks for sharing. Um, So we've been talking a little bit about kind of the stigmas and um, the myths surrounding uh, addiction following um, addiction in general, but also specifically following trauma. So I think that there's this myth that we already kind of talked about where people can easily stop if they are addicted. Now you mentioned that um, for some people, this may be an option, but anything else that you want to say as far as busting that myth? I, I do believe that there's an expectation for people to just stop. And if you've been drinking and doing drugs for years, how can you possibly just stop? Like your body craves it. I could tell you that I could go a day and then I would feel like I need a drink. Like I needed this. I needed this substance to make me feel better. And so it's definitely a myth. And support people when they're trying. You know, don't beat them over the head when they say, I tried to stop, but I couldn't. Say, you know, at least you tried. Let's go one day at a time. I know people that go an hour at a time. Like when they're coming out of addiction immediately, it's like, I'm going to go this hour without having a drink. And support them, congratulate them. If they do drink at the end of the day, if they do use drugs at the end of the day, it's okay. It's okay to be like, I know you're trying. You drink? Let's start over tomorrow. You know, and that's how we encourage each other. That's how you break the myth. That's how you eliminate the shame. If you say things to people that is negative, it creates shame in them. It creates guilt that they tried to do it again. And so they can't stop because they're not beating themselves up over the head and they're already having a struggle and you're adding to it. So encouragement, loving them and saying, how can I support you? And not trying to tell people what to do because that's what you would do maybe in your life, but it's not what's going to work for them. You have to create your own journey of getting out of any type of addiction. I love this idea of you um, kind of encouraging someone, even though they may have not achieved the goal that they were looking for in that moment. Um, Kevin, do you work with your clients in that regard as well, where, you know, maybe they had a certain goal, like, hey, I wanted to completely stop, um, you know, the using this substance, but I, you know, relapsed as, as a word. Um, how do you kind of help them through that in, an, in a positive way? Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen those setbacks, not always in the realm of addiction, um, with the clients that we see, but in adjacent ways, you know, healing from trauma, like I didn't want this, I didn't want to have these nightmares anymore. Or like, I thought I was past 
you know, hating myself when I look in the mirror. I thought I was past being triggered when I see so-and-so family member. So not the same type of relapse, but I think relapse still in the sense of like, I thought I was doing better and now, and, and sometimes for some clients where their self-esteem is like, I thought I was doing better, but I'm just like a screw up and I'm never going to get it. And so that, so starting over again, um, not obviously a hundred percent starting over, but just going back to the core of like one bad day doesn't take away the 30 good days you just had. So let's take it for what it is. We can't control it already happened and we can't change it now. So how are we going to move forward better, stronger, and more well-equipped to deal with what we're facing moving ahead. Absolutely. Again, I I love that both, um, you know, you, Dr. Guy, and kind of talking about, you know, like, hey, this was like a victory here and kind of like reframing it. And then also you, Kevin, talking about, you know, holistic, like backing out and seeing like, hey, look at your entire healing journey here. You're not going backwards. We always talk about how healing isn't linear. Oh, there you go. Uh, That's kind of what we mean. Um, another myth that I wanted to talk about is that I think as a society, when we think of someone who may have an alcohol addiction, for example, the first person that comes to our mind is like a man. So I think that there's this idea that only men experience addiction. What do you have to say about that, Dr. Guyton? I am proof that that myth is false. (laughs) You will see addiction in all areas, um, Rich people are addicted, poor people are addicted, middle-class people, white, black. It does not matter. It affects us all differently. And so that's definitely a myth. And a lot of times women won't come forward for help as easy. So I think that's part of it too, because we're supposed to be the head of the household, taking care of the kids. And it's so embarrassing for us. And so it's harder for us to come forward, you know, and and do it. And like men, they drink in social circles. They know that they're drinking and drinking a lot. It's acceptable. You know, they're doing it in sports and, but ladies are supposed to be, you know, proper and do things the right way. And we're not expected to drink and just one drink, right. With our pinky up. So we're supposed to be classy and that's not always the case. (laughs) So it's harder for us to come forward. But what I will tell you is that there are a lot of women that come together to support each other. And so you don't have to be alone, you know, and we understand each other and the struggles that we go to through as women is definitely different than what the struggles that men go through. And so I always say, find a group of women who are recovering and that allows you to break the myth and come forward without the shame and the embarrassment. But there's a lot of women. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, Dr. Guyton. Yeah, um, it was something that I hadn't even really thought of this like kind of gender um, you know, this myth that it only affects one gender. Kevin, uh, do you have anything you want to add to that as far as that myth? No, I think that that sounds right. Again, the clients that we mostly work with are female. So when I have had clients that have addiction problems, they are female because just because of the work we do with sexual assault survivors. So I guess I never... I never thought that that was true. (laughs) I know that it's a stereotype. Like I know that that's how people see addiction. Um, And maybe it's just more obvious because there's those stereotypes like the angry drunk guy who gets violent. And and so that's where the brain goes, but substance use can also be very quiet and very understated. So um, yeah, it is a myth, but I've, Definitely never bought into that myth, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know that's such a good point too. This like, um, as a society, we kind of maybe think of like the angry drunk man, right? That's who we think. And it kind of goes back to at the beginning of this where we said, hey, people with substance abuse problems may still go to work. They may still be, you know, as a society, we think as successful or whatever societal pressures are like, oh, they're, they're doing fine. Then they go home and they're quieter about it. So yeah, I appreciate that too. That might be another reason why we're seeing kind of this discrepancy of women not coming forward as much as men um, to seek uh, help in regards to addiction. Um, I think another myth is, you know, there could be someone who may think like, I just drink too much versus 
I have an addiction. So how do you feel about those kind of two statements, Dr. Guyton? Um, I think that a lot of people say I just drank too much. <laughs> that is really their way to say that they got a problem or addiction. It's just the way you word it. You know, you don't want to word it to a point where people are looking at you strange, you know, and judging you because there's a lot of judgment associated with addiction. And so uh, if you say I just drink a lot and I enjoy it, you know, you have to determine if you got a problem or not. You know, and your family can see it, your friends can see it, but it's a self-reflection. But some people do drink and they could stop tomorrow and they could drink as much as they want to and they don't have an addiction problem. That's just what they enjoy. You know, they drink a lot during football season and then they slow down, you know, during basketball season. And so, I, I don't know, I just see from a personal perspective that I would say I drank a lot, but I did not think that I had an addiction problem. <laughs> and you couldn't convince me otherwise, you know, nor did I want to believe I had a problem. So um, I don't know if that really addresses the difference between the two, but that's how I feel about it. <laughs> no, that's great. I think that it, again, at the end of the day, it's individual. Um, and I think that we kind of did a pretty good job of addressing when it becomes an addiction um, or when it can become an addiction and I always appreciate kind of the conversation of how much judgment is around this topic and kind of just normalizing it so that people, um, can, like we were mentioning in the beginning, as far as I wanted to do this thing, but this got in the way. Well, I'd love to remove the judgment so that people can do what they want to do and, and achieve the goals that they, that they're looking for. Um, Speaking of which, I think that there might also be this myth that if someone comes forward and, and we already saw this huge correlation between addiction and experiences with past trauma or the ACEs score as well, um, there may be this myth that if they come forward to get help, that we only need to focus on addressing the addiction, that we don't actually need to work with the trauma. Um, so any thoughts about that myth? I don't think that you can address trauma without addressing everything that's going on in your life. It's it's a complete circle. And if you address the addiction and don't address the trauma, what's going to happen is you're going to relapse. You're going to easily go back into um, the addiction phase because you didn't address it. You might have a trigger. You might have a nightmare, you know, and drinking is your coping mechanism. The drugs is your coping mechanism. So you have to address yourself completely. Um, I will tell you that I could not stop drinking until I addressed the trauma. Until I addressed the trauma, the depression, and all of that, th drinking was the second thing. That was afterwards, right? Um, because I still could not, even when I was in therapy. And so you must address the trauma. And you might get lucky and stop the addiction and not address the trauma, but um, most people don't. Yeah, Kevin, um, you know, with your work with trauma, uh, Dr. Guyan kind of talked about like this holistic kind of um, way of addressing it. Would you agree kind of you need to come at it from this holistic way and how do you do that? Things like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would even say that for people who have trauma and addiction and that, that there is a link to find somewhere or two different places where you can have a counselor addressing one, a counselor addressing another. That way there's a treatment plan for both um, and both are being addressed because it can be for some people, depending on their story, like a chicken or the egg scenario, you know, who knows what's fueling which one and which one came first, but they both have to be tackled kind of, yeah, at the same time to see long-term really positive results. So I would definitely, you know, and that's, then there are really great places and groups that provide free and low cost and multimodal treatment and groups and teams of people working with you. Um, I know sometimes those can get very expensive if they're like private rehabs and things like that, but there's obviously everyone we work for victim service center, <laughs> you know, like we provide those things for free. Um, and a lot of places are willing to work with people to make these, this recovery affordable. So um, that's why we do this podcast and that's why we have guests like Dr. Vanessa. And so, <laughs> so we're putting it out there that if 
you or someone you know is experiencing that, like there are places where you can find the treatment that you're looking for. Yeah, I appreciate that, Kevin. I think that at the end of the day, just the the main thing I always want to highlight is, you know, you're not alone and you have a lot of options. Um, And we talk a lot about how following trauma, there are these different common reactions and coping mechanisms and um, other things like that when it comes to trauma. But I also like to mention that healing can and does happen too. Um, and there's people here like Dr. Guyton, like Kevin, who are just ready to help you on that journey, whatever it looks like for you. Um, we already really busted the myth again, just want to, it's always worth uh, mentioning it where people suffering from substance abuse um, cannot be high functioning. So going to work and stuff like that. So I think we definitely addressed that um, as far as that no substance abuse can look different in many different ways and people who are suffering, maybe doing it silently at home, but still going to work, um, still doing other, you know, things and being part of society, but then, you know, going home and, and, and having this. Um, and then um, the last one too is, uh, which I kind of address now, but anything that you would like to add is people suffering from substance abuse cannot recover and will always relapse. So any thoughts on that? I think that um, there is this big myth too, and this stigma as far as like, once someone has an addiction, it'll never go away. So any anything you'd like to highlight? I think you can recover. I think it's a journey that you will probably have for the rest of your life. And it's a choice. You make a choice whether you use the drugs, you make a choice whether you do the alcohol. Is there a possibility that you may relapse? Yeah, it is, but you don't have to. So it's a personal choice. It's a personal journey. And it's a day, one day at a time. I didn't understand one day at a time until I realized I had a problem. But you do not have to be consumed by addiction for the rest of your life. It's a journey and you can heal and walk through it. I appreciate that, Dr. Guyton, because yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot of um, myths surrounding that specifically. So yeah, there's definitely always hope. And I like the one day at a time and kind of meeting you where you're at and those kinds of concepts. So we did again, talk about the shame surrounding, um, you know, those suffering from addiction. And there's kind of this overlap too, about the shame survivors face due to society, blaming them or shaming them for what happened to them, the victim blaming or the fear of not being believed and things like that. So why do you think that we have shame surrounding um, those suffering from addiction? Where do you think this is coming from and what can we do to combat it as a society? I think off the bat, the first thing that comes to mind is people blame the person like, it's a choice. You're choosing to pick that up. You could put it down if you, if you, if you tried hard enough. And if, if people have a lack of awareness of people's stories, you know, everyone's going through something and that's part of having compassion. We don't know what they've been through that has led them to that moment, but the societal way to handle addiction is like, well, this is on you. This is your fault. You need to clean yourself up, get your act together and figure it out. There's not a, uh, more and more nowadays we're seeing people have the understanding that it is an addiction. It is, it gets to that point where it is chemical. Um, you know, there's a whole, I'm remembering back to my addictions class, there's a whole like biopsychosocial approach to addiction where it's, there is the biological factor of the chemical addiction, you know, people predisposed to alcoholism uh, from their genealogy. There's the understanding that there's a social component because we drink when we're with friends and in groups and it's what we do and it's fun. Um, And then there's a psychological approach, which is, is there trauma? Is there depression or anxiety or PTSD? that alcohol or any substance has become the go-to coping skill. Um, but society sees it as a, oftentimes a moral issue. Like if you were a better, stronger, more capable person, you could figure it out. Um, or if you loved your family enough, if you loved your spouse enough, you could stop, but you don't cause you're selfish. It's a very toxic, um, I think it helps those people avoid dealing with that person because it's hard. So if I can just say, you have to figure this out yourself, then I don't have to feel bad about your situation. I don't have to have as much compassion and it's easier for me because I can just put this on you. So that's where my brain goes is the shame is like, 
society, this is one of those things similar to sexual assault. We point the finger, we say, what were you wearing? You know, why were you out so late? Why did you go on a date with this person? So I think there are a lot of similarities as far as that shame component. I love that, Kevin. That was perfect. <laughs> I also think that we inflict shame on ourselves, right? You're already embarrassed about the trauma that happened to you. You're embarrassed that you can't deal with it. You're embarrassed that you're not healing, that you're still struggling. And so the shame is self-inflicted a lot of times. And so you're hiding it. You don't want anybody to know. And then, like you said, society, society people always have things to say and they're not always encouraging and think people think that they are encouraging sometimes when they're not. And so that creates the shame as well, you know, instead of just doing, I always say just love somebody through their addiction. Love it because it is a chemical imbalance. Sometimes, sometimes it's our brain, um, our limbic system and we can't control it until we have to get help, you know, and addiction a lot of times have to be helped with a doctor, you know, a medical doctor. And so not just a psychiatrist and just being prescribed medication because it's that serious. And so there's a shame associated there as well. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you kind of sharing, like, this is how to be a good supporter. Um, I think also just like reading your book and like watching the documentary can help you kind of learn a little bit more, just getting more educated on it and just normalizing the conversation as well. Um, also, I feel like, um, in addition to that, you know, just be mindful as we get into New Year's and things like that, that you don't know everyone's story. You don't know what people are going through. So please don't pressure people into doing things that um, at all, right? <laughs> I'll just keep that in mind <laughs> for those listening. Um, uh, so I also wanted to talk a little bit more about some of those resources available to um, survivors su suffering from substance abuse. Um, so what are some of those resources that you want to kind of uplift as far as like a jumping off point for a survivor? Um, for me, I think one of your good resources just is an advocate. A victim advocate is priceless because they can contact other organizations and find those resources for you. That is the strength of a victim advocate, you know, and I firmly believe that. So that's one of the things that I do. I always talk to a person and see what help do they need and what resources I have available and especially free resources. I am a firm believer of free. And so like our organization, we have partnered with an organization called Abundant Living Life. And if we have somebody that's dealing with addiction and needs intensive treatment, we have an organization that we could send them to absolutely free. It's in Baltimore, Maryland, and it doesn't matter where they are, we get them there and they're there for between 30 to 45 days. And so only a victim advocate really can tell you that, you know, like where are the good resources at? My other favorite resource is AA, Alcoholic Anonymous. It's non-judgmental. They are going to love on you. <laughs> They're going to share their experiences with you. They're going to be able to be there after hours. You know, sometimes family and friends are not there 24 hours a day. When you get a sponsor, they're there with you all the time through that walk. And some people are not a fan of AA. I love AA. I'm not a fan of men groups because I'm just not big on being in big circles with men. But the women group for me was phenomenal. Um, I go to Spiritual Progress in Columbia, South Carolina. The ladies are amazing. Um, I also think that Al-Anon is really good, especially if addiction is in your family, if your children are dealing with addiction, if it's your mother, your father, just being able to understand it. Al-Anon is that family organization to help you with alcohol and narcotics and just giving you an insight to be there. So those are some of the resources that I absolutely love, but your local victim advocate will be able to find places in your area to support you through this journey. And don't be an embarrassed and shame. It exists because other people deal with it. <laughs> so that's why we got programs. So don't be shamed. Don't be shameful. Just go for it and work on your healing because the resources are out there. Just sometimes they're not always published. So a lot of times we don't publish everything because safety reasons. So you won't know everything that we offer until you contact us and let us know what needs you have. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's like these programs wouldn't exist if it was just you, right? Like there are other people kind of going through this. You're not alone. And Kevin, I know that you kind of highlighted some of our services already. And um, I appreciate you also mentioning that um, some groups worked for you and some didn't. 
and we have a lot of different groups um, and support groups. Kevin, did you want to like highlight just a few of them? Yeah, I was just going to, well, you know, when it comes to sexual assault survivors, Victim Service Center, of course, has a number of support groups and free advocacy available. Um, and then when it comes to addiction, Aspire in our area has a number of different levels of inpatient, outpatient, intensive outpatient um, support style groups for addiction. There's also the VA um, always provides services for anyone who's a veteran with addiction. Um, I know there's a division for that, but I think Dr. Guyton said it best, like get involved with the support group with AA, especially now to a lot of people who I have spoken with are turned off by the idea of AA or they're like, Oh, they're, I don't believe in God. And they're going to make me believe in that. And there's not, there's secular ones. There's AA groups for people of Jewish or Islamic or Christian or non-denomination. There's, it is, people have asked and it is there. So um, any type of AA, they have traditional, they have non-traditional where it's not necessarily the 12 steps. It's kind of um, broken down a different way. So so I always encourage, like, don't use that as an excuse. Don't let the one thing stop you from finding the support group you need. Um, I knew someone even over COVID who found a virtual one. Um, so it was people from all over the US. It was a group of like 10 or so of them. So it is such a popular option. It is such a helpful option. I mean, it's been around forever um, that it is available on every platform, probably within two miles of your house. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kevin, because that was literally the next question I was going to ask because, yeah, um, basically oftentimes resources may call on faith as a tool for healing. And while that can be part of some survivors healing, it may not be for everyone, especially those, of course, who suffered from spiritual trauma. Um, so it sounds like, you know, you, you shared that there's all these different options too, but Dr. Guyton, what would you say to a survivor who is maybe hesitant in seeking help because of this? Be honest with your faith, but be honest if you're atheist, just say, this is, this is my faith and this is what I'm looking for. Do you have anything available? Um, and our support group for AA, there are two atheists and they just tell you, they'll just tell you straight up, you know, they, they, they don't believe in God, but they believe in AA. You know, so you just got to find the right group, the right circle for you. And don't give up. Just like you got to find the right therapist or a counselor. You got to find the right group. I've been in support groups that I did not like. <laughs> and I just didn't go back. But I didn't give up. So finding that right circle and your faith is important. Like um, you'll have people there that are Christians. You'll have people there that are Jews. You know, um, I'm more spiritual. I have the best relationship with God that I can ever have. And so I don't identify as a certain faith or religion. And, and that's that works for me. And so don't ever let somebody dictate what you should and should not do based on your faith. And be honest about your faith to see if this is the space for you, because it may not be, but there's always a space for everybody. So don't give up. I love that. I think that um, the, also just the reminder that just because you go to a support group that you didn't connect with doesn't mean that you should give up. And then also you can just try it out too. just go to one or two meetings. I've had a podcast on support groups before, and it might be maybe two or three before you might feel a connection. So maybe just kind of have this trial period. Um, you don't have to say anything. You can just be there um, and see how it works. And, and if it's not working, no shame in that either, you know, move on and, and there's other options and your advocate and being honest about like, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. And this is what turned me off here um, will be really helpful to find what works for you. You know, kind of as some finishing questions here, some final questions, how can we be better supporters of survivors who are also suffering from, suffering from addiction? I know we talked about like loving them through their addiction. Is there anything else that we can be um, better supporters at? Um, I always recommend that you ask two questions. How can I help you? What do you need from me? They may have something for you to do. <laughs> they may need your support. They may not. But ask and then say, well, I'm always here if you need me. That sums it up. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes we need help. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we may not want it from you. So you can't get offended that you're not the person or the organization that I want to use. 
but just offer your assistance. You know, how can I help you? What do you need from me? And let them tell you. And if it's nothing, be okay with it's nothing, you know, and love them anyway. And always tell them that you'll always be there for them. Um, a lot of times we want to give advice and I would do this or I would do that. Sometimes people don't want to have your advice. <laughs> sometimes your advice does not apply. You know, um, sometimes you want to make somebody go to a certain resource, but that resource is not the one that I want to use. And I'm not going to heal if I don't choose my own journey and my own path. So um, I think that is very important when you want to help somebody through this journey. Definitely. I love that. Kevin, is there anything that you want to add as far as being a good supporter? I think that that is very similar to what I always say, which is like, what do you need from now? How can I help you right now? Like in this moment, um, what is the best way that I can offer support because I have the ability to offer you support right now? Um, and even making plans with people like, maybe I can support you in X, Y, and Z, but not in ABC kind of ways. Like I can be the one you call once a week. Um, but you know, I can't, uh, show up at your house and have dinner with you. Cause I have a family, you know, like find how, find what kind of support the people around you give to you. These are my fun friends. This is a good distraction. We're going to go to the movies and it's not serious. And I need that. And then these are the people who are shoulder to cry on and who make me feel safe emotionally so like knowing in that circle what kind of support those people give um so that as support people too we don't burn them out and overwork them so it is a balance but it's also like an open conversation like i need support can you provide this for me super important love that um and also, Dr. Guyton, before we sign off here, I'd like to know kind of where can someone find your book? Where can someone watch your documentary, get involved, all that stuff? So my organization is Hush No More, and our website is www.hushnomore.org. Our book is there. Coloring book is there. Services is there. You can look at our podcast on there. And that's the main way that you can contact us. The book is also on Amazon. But if you go through our website, then I'll send you a signed copy. If you go to Amazon, then I can't always sign it. We do documentary screenings for different organizations, different communities. And you just let us know that you want to do a documentary screening and we do it virtual or we come into your community and do the screening because we think it's important to hear the voices of survivors and to hear their journey and to see what they did to heal. And so we screen it in your organization and in your area, or you could just join one of our screenings that we have every quarter. And that's always online. And that's Hush No More. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so excited um, to kind of read and like uh, dive into one of those documentary screenings. I would love that. Um, so I think that that's a great place to sign off. But before I do, is there anything else you'd like to bring up that we may not have covered or anything you'd like to say to anyone who may be listening? So for me, I think it's important to admit to yourself what's really going on. You just have to be honest with yourself. And at the end of the day, that's how we grow, is being transparent. And that's how you can get the help that you need. And don't feel bad, you know? It's so hard in our society because people walk around like their lives are perfect, but most people's lives are not. And so it makes it really hard for us to come forward. But people all have crap going on in their lives. Yours might just look a little different than others. And so come and get the help. You know, you can always contact me reach out to me on our website or my number is 1-888-285-2161 and you can call me and see how I can just come up with a help you come up with a strategy or just to listen. My goal is always to listen. So you're not alone. <laughs> um, we're out here to support you. And even this podcast was created to support you and show you some love. So peace and blessings. Thank you so much, Dr. Guyton. Kevin, is there anything you wanted to say? Yeah, just help is out there. You just need to not be shy to ask for it. You know, that first step can be the hardest, but just asking for help. And then that's where your advocate or case manager or counselor can help make the plan from there. So just taking that first step, again, I know it's the hardest, but once that first step is taken, then that opens you up to a team of people who want to help. Thank you so much, both of you for, for joining me today. And 
And thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims and survivors of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And happy new year. And thank you so much, Dr. Guyton and Kevin for joining me today.